If you dare, you can turn to Luke 11. More, a little bit more of what we had last week. It's just what God wants us to have. It's the next, cha- next section, so we're going to suck it up and see if we can endure another week of it. And this morning, we want to look at hypocrites exposed and insulted. Now, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll see hypocrites exposed and judged later. But for this morning, we want to look at Jesus as he's in a dialogue with the religious leaders who have become experts in hypocrisy. And he is exposing them because of their their legalism and uh, their hypocritical lifestyle, their, their deception. They're, they're appearing one way, but they're really another. It's just, they're not real. They're not real. And you know, uh, in all, in the church, throughout the church ages, it happens here in America. It happens other places. Uh, men want to help God out. You know, they, we want to help God. Um, when, when, you know, a pastor is preaching the word and he doesn't see his congregation changing. He just, he wants so much for them to be godly. He just wants to help God out. And so maybe he could impose a few extra rules. Uh, maybe he could impose a little extra regulations. Maybe he could squeeze them a little harder or shame them a little deeper or, you know, whatever. And, and so when this happens, sometimes churches begin to wander off into legalism. For instance, when I go to Russia, just like in many churches here, this could be just as well as here as in Russia. But, uh, you know, they, they are very, very concerned about legalism creeping in because some churches, they, they see the ungodliness in the world. They see the wicked lifestyle, the immorality, the immodesty, all of these things. And they see the vices and the churches want to make sure that their people are not living like the world. And you know what? That is good. That we shouldn't be engaging in worldly things. But oftentimes because of this and their zeal to honor God and they're really their zeal to see what is right in happen, um, what is right in the lives of people before God, they begin to add rules, just extra regulations. That, you know, if you're a woman, you have to make sure that your dress is three inches below the knee and, you know, your your neckline is at a certain place or, you know, um, you you can't smoke or you can't drink alcohol and, you know, all of these kinds of things where, you know, you know what the Bible says about that. The Bible does talk about modesty, but it doesn't say three inches below the knee. The Bible does tell us that we need to take care of our body, but you can't say, well, therefore smoking is the evil we must go after because what about not wearing sunscreen? (laughs) What about eating ice cream? What about putting too much salt on things? You know, if you're going to come down on people for quote, harming their body, then what about sitting down too much and watching too much TV? I mean, come on. You know, see, what happens is we, we, we kind of invent rules where we want to invent rules. And some people are really good at inventing rules. And the Bible does say, you know, not to get drunk, but it doesn't say don't drink any alcohol. Now, 
what this comes down to is, is that we need to just accept that God knows better than we do. Uh, is that okay with you? That God knows better than you? I mean, think about it. Does God know better or not? Well, then just leave it at where God says. Leave it at where God says. God doesn't need us helping him regulate people's lives beyond his word. And now, granted, it is true that sometimes the leadership of the church has to decide how to apply a certain text or principle. And they may say, at Calvary Bible Church, we're going to do this because of these reasons. That's fine, too. And it's okay for you to have personal convictions in your life. That's great, too. But as soon as you take the man-made part, the personal conviction part, and all of a sudden you say, this is to be obeyed or you're sinning, then you've become a legalist. You have now added to the scriptures, actually supplanted the scriptures. And what I think a lot of people don't understand because their passion and their zeal to see people following the Lord, which is good, begins to deny essential doctrines like the sufficiency of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, which alone can save and sanctify people. You cannot make somebody more godly by imposing more regulations on them. You can just make them more burdened and more frustrated and more guilty But you know, there's only one person who can make somebody more godly, and that's God. It's only the Holy Spirit working through the word of God that can change someone's life. And people forget this. Leaders in churches forget this. They kind of set that aside and they think, you know, this is bad. This is ungodly in our church. This isn't working. So instead of teaching the people, instructing them, informing them more with the words so the Holy Spirit can change their life, they think, let's make a rule. Let's make another rule and another rule and another rule. And pretty soon you have a church that becomes legalistic. And all churches are this way to a degree. And I think we all kind of gravitate towards this to a degree because it makes us feel good when we can meet up our own rules. And live by our own standards and kind of say, well, I do this. That's legalism. It is a form of hypocrisy. Because in our hearts, we're not perfect and we know it. And the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to in our text have done this very thing. They've made tons of rules and tons of regulations. And they're actually leading God's people away from God as leaders. Man, how could this ever be? And then Jesus comes along and says, you know, I am the Messiah. They've already had John the Baptist. Before that, they had all the miracles accompanying his birth. You know, Zechariah and the prophecies and Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds and all of these things that were spoken of all around Jerusalem. All of that information, plus John the Baptist, plus Jesus, plus his teaching, plus his miracles, all of that. Oh, yeah, he's doing miracles by Satan. He's a false prophet. Don't follow him. And so the leaders are influencing the people to reject their own savior. That's about as wicked as you can get. And so with evil motives, one of the Pharisees says to Jesus, come to my house and let's have lunch. 
When really what he wants to do, he has gotten all of his pharisaical friends and he's gotten together all the lawyers, some of whom were members of the sect of the Pharisees, but the lawyers were the experts in the law. And he has Jesus over and they're all kind of surrounding Jesus and they've got him under their microscope and they're looking for a flaw so that they can accuse him and discredit him more in the eyes of the people because Jesus keeps exposing them and their sin. And they're hating Jesus because of that. And so under the pretense of lunch, they're really trying to snag Jesus. And so Jesus, we saw last week, gives the Pharisees a verbal thrashing. And now we learn that there's not only the Pharisee invited him, but his other Pharisee friends. And we're going to learn in our text this morning, there's some lawyers present too. So... Follow along in Luke as we read verses 45 through 54 in chapter 11. Luke 11, 45 through 54. When you have dyslexia, that's hard to, do, hard to read that. Um, I keep questioning myself. <clears throat> One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said to them, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, from this section, we're going to learn about four things to avoid, four things that we need to be aware of um, in our lives that can lead us away from God while at the same time make us feel good and think that we're pursuing God. Very deceptive. Very deceptive. The first thing is avoid burdening others with your man-made traditions. Look at verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, notice the Pharisees were not the only ones present. They were also lawyers. Um, uh, verse 53 calls them scribes. They're the same things. Uh, they were the experts in the law of Moses. You know, we have lawyers today um, to deal with our laws, laws of the state, laws of the, the nation. And we have a legal issue. We go to a lawyer. He is an expert not only in what the law says, but in the interpretation of those laws. Well, in the same way, um, these men had studied the law of Moses, the law, the prophets. They were very conversant in the Old Testament scriptures, experts. They not only knew what the text says, but then they told people how to apply the text to their life. So one of the lawyers says in the middle of verse 45, teacher, when you say this, you insult us. As Jesus was verbally flogging, the Pharisees, the lawyers felt the sting of his whip. And 
It seems Jesus' word had so thoroughly exposed the Pharisees that they were shocked into silence and said nothing. It's interesting. They say nothing. They're just, you know, they they aren't used to somebody being able to read their mind. I mean, they have this huge religious facade where they're deceiving everybody in the nation. They get together with Jesus and he just like just rips their disguise off. And they're just, they're feeling naked. They're just, they don't even have a word to say. And so one of the lawyers who, who is listening to Jesus expose the Pharisees is thinking, I wonder about us. Because he's feeling guilty just listening to what Jesus says about them because he's doing the same things. And so he, he's kind of fishing here and he says, you insult us too. And uh, he's probably thinking, you know, uh, hopefully he's going to say, well, I'm not talking about you lawyers. You guys are godly. Jesus told the Pharisees they were full of robbery. Oh, and wickedness. Oh, and they're like dirty cups. Clean on the outside, bad on the inside, or plates that are washed real good on the bottom where you don't eat and filthy on the top where you do eat. Oh, and by the way, you, you, you make a show of your tithing, and by the way, you don't extend justice, oh, and you don't love God. And you lust for fame and respect and the favor of men, not the favor of God. And oh, you're spiritually dead and defiling. And those who come in contact with you are defiled. So that's how he lays into them. So this lawyer is thinking, well, you insult us too, you know, because we're, we're kind of like them. <laughs> now, before we get back to the text, I just got to deal with this a little bit because uh, it just begs. It begs. It, you know what? It's almost mean for me to do this, but uh, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I'm going to raise questions I don't answer. But there's a purpose. There's a purpose. Um, Last week, I raised the question of, how can we be like Jesus here? We're supposed to be like Jesus. And look at what he's telling these men. Look at what he's doing to these men. How he's insulting them, exposing them, mocking them. In front of each other and their peers. He isn't pulling one aside in private and rebuking them. He's drilling into them as a whole. How are we to be? How is this loving? Jesus never sinned. And when you think about love, what is love anyways? Well, a good biblical definition of love um, is doing what is best for other people according to the word of God. You could add in their sacrificing to do what is best for other people according to the word of God. And we know there's that classic definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. You know, love is patient, love is kind. It does not, you know, it is, you know, not taking account of wrong suffered, is not obnoxious and, you know, all of those things. And when you look at those, there's no feelings mentioned. There's no emotions mentioned that love feels a certain way or is happy about certain things. No, love does what is best. It wasn't fun for Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He wasn't happy about it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't convenient. It was a huge sacrifice. 
yet the greatest demonstration of love. So we know that love does what is best for other people. They might not like it. They may not want it. They may not realize it's best for them. They may hate you for it. But love does what is best according to the word of God. So keep that in mind. That's kind of our overall definition. And love has as its two primary focuses, the love of God and the love of one's neighbors. The great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one is like it, love your neighbors yourself. We know those things, those, that's the easy part. And of course, the love of God is to be the priority over loving men. If the, you know, governing authorities say, we want you to quit praying, quit worshiping God and deny Jesus Christ and offer up some incense to this idol. We say no, 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 and no. We disobey at that point because we have to obey God because he is the priority love of our life. And when you refuse to obey somebody, what you're really doing is showing them a form of hatred. Now, hatred is just such a politically incorrect term today. But that's what the Bible says. Uh, Let me just read this. This is in the section dealing with the commandments and not worshiping idols. This is Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice how love relates to keeping the commandments, disobeying, idol worship is a form of what? Hating. That is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not keep my commandments so I will love you. And save you, but because I have loved you and I have saved you, then you love me in response by obeying my word. That is pretty clear. That's the easy part. That's the easy part. And we know from texts like Luke 16, 13, where you probably remember where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. A little principle there is notice you either love and hate or are devoted to and despise. Notice how hate and love are antithetical and they relate to submitting to and obeying. So we know that when we don't submit to God, when we don't, obey God when we don't do what the word of God says we're actually showing hatred towards God well in the same way when people say well come and sin with me you know come and engage in this evil deed and we say no in a sense we're we're hating them right because we will not submit to them we will not follow them in their rebellion against God Now, this is where it gets kind of complicated, and this is where I'm going to raise some questions that I'm not going to answer, but just to explain to you the complexity issue so I can answer what Jesus is doing in the text. I am going to deal with that. But how do you love a mugger who is mugging a helpless old lady? You ever thought about that? How do you love a man in a shopping mall who is killing people at random with a gun? Think about that. How do you love someone who is harming others? You know, how does a Christian police officer love a bank robber who's shooting at him? 
He loves him, you know, with his 40 caliber Glock. And how does a soldier exercise love in battle? He shoots bombs and fires bullets at the bad guys who may be Christians. Brothers, fellow believers or sisters in Christ nowadays. And this is a complex subject. It would be very fun to go into all these. I'm not going to. But I just want to bring it out there because, you know, a lot of people start throwing stones as soon as they see anything kind of what they determine as negative. Well, that hurt my feelings. Therefore, you're not loving. That's not true. You offended me. Therefore, you're not loving. That's not true either. You rebuked me and that hurt me. Therefore, you're not loving. That's not true either. Well, you're shooting at me. You need to let me shoot at you, but you don't shoot back. I'm the robber. You're the good guy. Tolerate me. Now it's not loving either. So what's going on in our text? We know it's never best to harm anyone that love does what is best for others. Now, we need to be loving God as a priority, loving our neighbors ourselves. Well, were the religious leaders here loving God? No. Were they respecting God's holiness? Were they treating God as holy before the people? No. Do you remember Leviticus chapter 10? Leviticus 10, where Aaron's son, I mean, you know, the tabernacle is just constructed. They get all the hardware in. It's all, they're all set up. I mean, this is cool they got their porpoise skin and all the rings and the poles and everything all the little gold things and the of the ark i mean everything's kind of you know they're kind of like it's like a new car and they all get instructed on how to operate this tabernacle kind of portable temple and nadab and abihu who are the sons of the high priest who is aaron who themselves are priests maybe get drunk According to the following contest, there's immediate regulation about drinking, but uh, they may not have been drunk. But what they did do is they offered strange fire to the Lord. And then what happened was, is fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, incinerated them, charred them into rubble. Now, what if that, what if those were your sons? And Aaron sees what happens to his sons, and you know how a dad feels when he just loses two of his sons. He's like, oh no. But you know what God says? Stop! If you mourn your sons, I'll kill you too. Like, whoa. Okay. I'll be happy about it. Why did God say that? Because by not obeying God as leaders and representatives of God before the people, they were dishonoring God before the masses. So if Aaron would have mourned the death of his sons, 
he would have been approving of their behavior and honoring them, though they dishonored God before the people. And God then says to Moses, those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Now that you think, wow, you know who that is? That's Jesus. The same God. Who came down in human flesh, the very same one. He has not changed. He cannot change. It is always best. It is always most loving to show love to God. You know, that text, uh, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. First Corinthians 13, the big definition Paul has. There's a couple lines in there that I think a lot of people forget when they think of loving. I usually think he's loving is you're going to do what I like. You're going to make me feel good. You're going to help me. You're going to give me things because that's love. That's what that's how you love me. Now, God tells us how to love other people. And God says in his definition of love, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but in the truth. Unrighteousness is the living out of error. Truth and living out truth is obedience. Love does not rejoice in that. So you are never loving anybody by tolerating, accepting, participating in their rebellion against God. You cannot be loving and do that. It is antithetical to love. So the religious leaders in the text here, they're not loving God. They're not obeying God. They're not treating God as holy among the people, as the representatives to the people for God. Then this is why they were not loving their neighbor. Not really were they not loving God. They were not loving their neighbor because they were leading the people astray. They were teaching the people to be hypocrites. They were trying to... Pretend to be this way, have this mask, but the real heart of the issue, the real matter was they were wicked, though they had this pretense. Turn over to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. A great text that is very similar to what we see going on here. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah is talking about, uh, actually God is talking through Jeremiah about the, the, the leaders at his time. And he says this, starting in verse 1 of Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock, have driven them away, have not attended them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declare the Lord. Now notice his solution down, go down to verse five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And his, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness and we know who that is jesus and though this is talking about his future when he comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom jesus is here in this first coming he's still the righteous branch he's still the good shepherd and he's dealing with the shepherds just like it is predicted he will in a more ultimate way in the future 
He is Messiah, God incarnate. He has authority not only to rebuke people, not only to kill them, but cast them into hell, as we shall learn in the next chapter, as it lightens up a little bit. Their hypocritical life and teachings were harming others. They were leading people away from God instead of towards him. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15, a similar text where he's laying into the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around sea and land to make one proselyte, that is one convert to your sect. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. That is bad. Not only are you running away from God, you help somebody run away from God twice as fast. So they were leading God's people astray. And this is why in the New Testament, the church is to deal so forthrightly with leaders. The elder who continues in sin, reprove in the presence of all. Why? So the rest will be fearful of sinning. If he is representing the people, if he is engaged in sin then what do you have to do? You hold them a higher standard. You reprove them in the presence of all. Why? Because God will be treated as holy among his people. He demands it. And when we say one thing and do another, as leaders, we train them to be hypocrites. And this is a serious sin. You know, one of the scary things about being a leader, you know, a lot of people, they need to be sobered up in this area. No, I'm teaching a Bible study. I'm leading a small group. You know, I'm overseeing this and I'm doing that. And you better be scared about that. You know what God says in Hebrews talks about that you need to shepherd as those who will be accountable to God for your shepherding, for your oversight. That's scary. Teachers will incur a stricter judgment. That scares me. People always say, well, you know, what happens if you don't have time to get your sermon done? I have time. I don't have to sleep. You have to have time. You know, my seminary students are going, well, you know, what happens if you get interrupted? And what happens if you have a wedding? And what happens if you have a funeral? And what happens if somebody gets hurt in the hospital? You know, what do you do? And, you know, Saturday comes and you don't have time to do your sermon. And you said you'd go to a picnic. You bitch the picnic. You stay up all night so that you get the text done right. Why? Because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. You think God's kidding there? He's not kidding. He's serious about this. Every leader must keep in mind that God is watching them to see how they shepherd his sheep. And he wants them well taken care of. So the lawyers are insulted at Jesus' words to the Pharisees. They wonder if Jesus is including them in his hard words. Look at verse 46. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. And I'm sure the guy thought, I probably shouldn't have asked that question. I probably should have just kept quiet. And remember the word woe means condemned, deservingly to be judged, lined up for judgment. Look again at verse 46. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. We saw an example of this last week where the lawyers and scribes, you know, they, they made all these regulations, right, about tithing. And so what they did, of course, is they would come and, you know, divide up all their spices and make a show of giving their spices. You know, here's a little paprika, a little pepper, a little oregano. 
you know, Italian seasoning. <laughs> a tenth, of course. See how godly I am? I'm down to the spices. Even though God never said to do that, they just kind of added that. And this is what they did to the, hundred and, the 613 laws in the book of Moses. They added and added and added until pretty soon they had over 6,000 traditions in the Mishnah that people were to do in addition to the 613. That is insane. That's like 10 extra traditions per law. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you read the Old Testament, aren't you glad you're in the New Testament? I mean, when you start saying, and you don't know, take the fat of the kidneys and offer it up as a soothing aroma to the Lord and take the hide outside the camp and burn it there. And, you know, you're just reading all this stuff and make sure you do this. And on the, the festival of this and on the thing of this and do this. And on the first day of the week and the last day of the week, I mean, just regulations and regulations. You're just thinking, oh, no, no, no. I'm so glad I'm a New Testament Christian. I love the New Testament because, man, I just can't handle that anymore. And then imagine just multiplying that times 10. There you go. Now you have who Jesus is talking to. And the Mishnah in Sanhedrin 11.3 makes it clear that it is more important to obey the interpretation of the law by the lawyers than the law itself. Now you have not only made extra regulations, you've set the regulations and traditions of men over and against the word of God. If you're going to choose, obey what we tell you, not God. That's what they're saying. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke gives one example of what the lawyers had done. You know, on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to work. That's a pretty easy. You know, okay, I can't work. I'm not supposed to do my normal thing. I'm supposed to set aside to the Lord and worship the Lord, you know, on the seventh day. All right. That's easy. Okay. Just leave it there. That's what God says. Okay. This is what they say. On the Sabbath, they taught a man may not carry a burden on his right hand or in his left hand. And a burden was considered anything that weighed more than a fig. He may not carry it in his bosom or on his shoulder. He may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or in his mouth or with his elbow or his ear, or in his hair, or in his money bag, as long as the mouth of the money bag is facing downwards. Or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. Sanhedrin 10.3. That's just one example. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's what they did in the whole law. All those 613 multiplied by 10. Of course, the lawyers would make rules so they could escape having to be burdened by all the rules they made others keep. They all they knew the loopholes that were kind of the inside things that we do that, you know, we don't really let it know, you know, publicly. But this is what we do because, you know, we don't want to be under the burdens we're placing other people under. For instance, you know, everybody knows the fifth commandment says honor your father and mother. That's pretty easy. You know, you honor your father and mother. I mean, not if they make you want to disobey God, but, you know, you take care of them, you honor them, you show respect to them when they get old. If they have needs, you go there, change the light bulbs, you know, mow their lawn, rake their leaves, you know, whatever. I mean, you take care of them, you honor them. 
And yet, the lawyers thought, now how can we get around this? You know, mom and dad starts getting old. I mean, it becomes expensive trying to take care of them. I got an idea. Let's give everything that we have and dedicate it to the Lord. Then it won't be ours. It will all be dedicated. The Lord, of course, will be the caretakers. I mean, we're not actually going to take it all and give it to the temple. But we are going to dedicate it to the Lord so that eventually when we die, it will then transfer there. Jesus, speaking of this in Matthew 15, verses 5 and 6 said, But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. They just let their mom and dad starve and beg so they can keep their money. Experts in the law. Weaseling out. But you know what? We do the same thing. We do the same thing. You know, just get out of the past and let's talk about the present. This is going to be a little convicting. So just kind of brace yourself. We have a way of justifying our rebellion. Now, I just want to say this up. Nobody is perfect. No Christian ever attains perfection in this life. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about being honest about where we are in the Lord. Instead of pretending we're something we're not. That's what we're talking about. Jesus isn't condemning these men because they weren't perfect. He's condemning these men because they're pretending to be something they're not. If they just would have said, man, we have problems. We have sins. We, we're having a hard time obeying God and we don't know what to do. And we're helpless and we're hopeless. And he'd say, I'd save you by grace and change you. But instead, they pretended to be something they're not. This is the problem. And in the church, we do the same thing. For instance, we might say, well, you know, are you involved in church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm involved in church. Well, what do you do? I, I show up every Sunday. Really? You think that's serving? Well, I show up. Well, doesn't the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, that you have a spiritual gift and you need to be using that in the context of the local church? Well, yes. And doesn't Peter say in 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift and play it and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God? Well, yes, but I just want you to know. I go to church. Wait! What about the word of God? Listen, I listen to tapes in my car or listen to sermons all week long as I wait. What about serving? I just want you to know this last year I've done better in giving than ever. Wait. What about serving? Is that hard to understand? God says to serve. If you don't serve, you're sinning. Don't come to church and say, well, because I attend, therefore I'm serving. You're not. You're not. And yet we have a way of kind of justifying. We kind of, you know, we kind of twist what James said. If you obey one commandment, you obey them all. <laughs> That's what we do, right? That's what they're thinking. We have this idea, well, you know, I'm... 
You, 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 you in the word? Oh, yeah, man, I'm in the word. Oh, good. Oh, good. So what have you been studying? Well, I read a chapter from Proverbs. Good, good. The study part. Well, that's it. That's not studying. That's reading a chapter. I mean, that's fine. Read the chapter. But when are you studying? Well, I just want you to know, last, last year I read all the way through the New Testament. When are you studying? Well, I just want you to know, I listen to the Bible on tape. When are you studying? See, they think, well, if I'm reading, isn't that studying? No, no, no. Reading's good. Studying's good too. Reading's commanded. Studying's commanded. Let me ask you this. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. See if this is you. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, if you make your ears attentive to wisdom, if you incline your heart to understanding, if you cry for discernment, lift your voice to understanding, if you seek her as service, silver, and search for his hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You doing those things? Then you're not studying. Are you the workman who does not need to be ashamed? handling accurately the word of truth you diligent are you working well no well then just say i'm not studying okay and you need to work on it but don't try and put on a pretense yeah man i'm in the word no you're not you're skimming the surface you're flying over at sixty thousand feet you wonder why you can't get any detail out of there you get 60,000 feet, you can only see farmland, mountain ranges. You can't even see the cars. This is what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfection here. We're just talking about honesty before God. Who are you before God anyways? And when we hang around other people, it's like, yeah, man, I'm getting into the word, which means I'm reading one chapter of the Bible as fast as I can in the morning so I can get it over with. That's not studying. God wants you to study, meditate, think on, ponder, and do all those things. We all need to be doing that. It's not just for a few people. We all need to be serving. We all need to be giving. We all need to be doing that. And you know what? I realize, God realizes you're never going to be perfect in this life. But let's just say what's true. Somebody comes up to you, try not to deceive them into thinking you're something you're not. We just love to do that, kind of make ourselves look like we're just a little bit better than we really are. That's what Jesus has a problem with. And it's so satanic, it's so wrong to have this self-justifying kind of facade type way of living where we present ourselves as one thing when we're not. Where we're obeying these external religious things, but in our heart, we're rebelling against God, but we're hiding it from people. Let's just be real. I'm not studying my Bible, and I need to work on it, and then work on it. Second, avoid pretending to love the messengers of God when you don't. And when you're sitting out there right now going, I wish he would shut up. Um, he's, he's ruining my day. Look at verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. Now, the lawyers and the Pharisees were great at supporting the, you know, they all were members of the Monument Construction and Funding Association. 
where they all wanted to get all the tombs of the prophets and build really nice, you know, edifices to the prophets. You can go to Jerusalem today, and then there's a really cool monument just right outside the wall where there is this, it, it, um, it's a very unique piece of architecture because it has a pointed pyramid-shaped roof, which is um, indicative of Egyptian architecture. And then it also has Roman columns, so it has a little Egyptian influence and a little bit of Roman influence in there. It was made about 100 B.C., and it's a monument to the prophet Zechariah, who the king of Israel killed in the court of the temple. And so there you have it, a monument to the prophet. And who knows, Jesus might have been referring to that very one. Look at the middle of verse 47. Jesus goes on to say, and it was your fathers who killed them. Oh, yeah, you're great at building monuments to the prophets. But guess what? Your granddads killed them. And by erecting a monument, you're really celebrating the murder of them by your grandfathers. Because they weren't going around saying, you know, our grandfathers did what was wrong. Our grandfathers shouldn't have killed the prophets. They shouldn't have persecuted them. They shouldn't put them to death. And the king was wrong. No, they just built monuments. And in doing so, they were saying, you know, our grandfathers did what was right. They were a little irritating, but we'll honor them afterwards. No, they weren't. They were honoring their executions. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's first and last sermon. That was a joke. He only preached one and then was stoned to death. You need to study Acts more. Acts 7, verses 36 through 39, he's talking about Moses. He's talking about how Moses led them. Now, I want you to notice the parallels between what Moses did and what Jesus is doing. Verse 36, this man, Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. He's saying when Moses came as God's messenger... And Moses did signs and wonders and spoke the word of God to them. The leaders then repudiated Moses, did not obey him and wanted to go back to Egypt. That is disobey God. These are the same things that are happening in the text. Jesus is the messenger of God. Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is preaching to them the word of God and they're despising Jesus. And they want to go back to their sin as he's exposing them. Look down at verses 51 and through 53. Now this is the punchline of his sermon. And notice how direct he is with them. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And then they killed him. They killed him. Why? Because he told them the truth. That's why. Now let's go back to Luke. Luke 11 verse 48. 
Jesus is just literally just defrocking them. He's just like ripping their costume off in front of each other. Look at verse 48. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build on their tombs. His whole point is, is you know what your fathers did. You know that what they did was wrong. You know the prophets were the prophets. You know that they were representatives of God. You know they were speaking for God. You know your fathers didn't obey them. You know your fathers killed them. And now you build a tomb. Instead of condemning your fathers for what they did. And instead of submitting to the prophets yourself. Because I am the prophet. And you won't submit to me. That's what's going on. The author of Hebrews speaks about the same thing. He says of the prophets that they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That's what he says. And so Zechariah the prophet was stoned to death in the court of the temple. It's like in the foyer of church. Isaiah the prophet was son in two. Uriah the prophet was slain with the sword. Why? Because they told people the truth. You know, there are many religious leaders today who don't want the truth. And they're leading churches. They're leading churches. You know, you can go around the world and you can see some incredible... I love old churches, man. I just... You know, when I go someplace and, and I'm driving around, I see a big spire sticking way up and some ancient cathedral. It's like everything I can do to not go look at it. I love the stones. I love the architecture and the big arched doors and the big flying buttresses and the stained glass windows. And I mean, it's just, it's a building masterpieces. It's all the characters, the Bible and the stained glass and the big statues and Mm. I love that stuff. But you know what? Those churches wouldn't tolerate one good sermon. They'd kick you out 15 minutes into the sermon. As soon as you got through with the introduction, started getting into the real word of God, they'd pitch you out in a second. They won't tolerate it, but yet they build these huge, mammoth, monstrosity works of art to God. But they won't tolerate his word. Interesting, isn't it? It's still happening today. It's happened ever since the time of Christ. Satan gets ungodly men, man-pleasing men, men who fear other men, men who are willing to compromise the truth and live in sin and hypocrisy. He gets them into leadership, and those men want to keep their hypocrisy intact so desperately that they will not Endure the preaching of the word of God. Look at verse 49. For this reason, Jesus says, also the wisdom of God said, it will send them prophets and apostles and some of them it will kill and some of them will persecute. And the, the phrase for this reason refers back to their fathers being prophet killers and them not learning the lessons of history. And God says, I, I'm going to send them prophets. Of course, John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. The apostles were prophets. Other people were prophets during that New Testament and also the apostles. And he says, and they're going to do the same thing to them, which will 
vindicate the wisdom of God, which says that generation, that same generation will do the same thing as the previous generations and kill those sent to her. But you know what? They're going to be more responsible. Why? Look at verses 50 and 51. So that the blood of all the prophets since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation for the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. You remember Abel. Abel offered the sacrifice. Cain offered the sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was rejected. Cain started pouting. God says, why are you pouting? He says, well, you know, you didn't accept my will. Just do what I told you. Quit trying to adjust the rules here. He says, if you do what's right, will not your countenance be lifted up? I mean, come on. Sin's crouching at your door and his desire is for you, but you must master it. Obey me. In other words. So then Cain waits for an opportunity. And when God's not walking around, he kills his brother. Why? Because his brother did what was right. And he hated him for it. And who's Zechariah here? Killed between, you know, the, the pillars of the temple. I mean, what's that? Well, that is not Zechariah who wrote the book of Zechariah. I think there's 14 Zechariahs in the Old Testament. This is the one that's mentioned in Second Chronicles 24, verse 21. Um, it is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. And he's the prophet. And he's prophesying. And he's basically, I think he's standing on the steps or at the entrance to the temple, right where those two pillars were. And he's proclaiming the truth and they stone him to death. Because he told them the truth and they did it in the temple. Wow. Now, what's what's Jesus saying here from this person to this person to all the prophets? Well, if you might probably won't know this unless you've you know, done some study in Hebrew. But in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. The first book is Genesis. So what Jesus is saying from the first godly man who is killed to the last godly man who is killed in Second Chronicles and everywhere in between, this generation is guilty. Why was that? Why could God say that? Because when you know history and you know the mistakes that went before and you don't correct your behavior and you follow the same mistakes, then you are guilty, more guilty because to whom more is given, more is required. Do you remember that? Do you remember when uh, Belshazzar in Daniel five is having his feast and and he is uh, he, he says, yeah, go get the. The sacred dishes that we, my father, grandfather Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the temple and bring them here and we'll, we'll celebrate our gods with them and have a little drunken orgy. And so they do. And then you remember what happens? The hand writes on the wall and then they get a little scared. And it says no one could translate the inscription. Well, it was in Aramaic and there was probably people there who, who could. They just didn't want to tell the king what it said. So they get Daniel because he's old and if he dies, it's no big deal. So Daniel shows up and Daniel begins to remind them of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what he says in Daniel five twenty one through 23. And he 
was that is Nebuchadnezzar was also driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of a beast. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High is rule over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whoever he wishes. He says, your grandfather had to learn this very hard lesson that God is sovereign and every king is a king because God makes them king. And it's no reason to be proud. And it's no reason to think that you did it by your own strength and your might. You're where you are because God put you there. So he, he knew all this. He knew this story. I mean, it's kind of hard to miss a story like that, that your grandfather wandered around and ate grass like an ox for seven years and not know that. <laughs> Look, at, But he says in verse 22, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you know all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought and have brought the vessels of the house of his house before you and you and your nobles and wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see, hear or understand but the God in whose hand are your life, breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Next morning... Different nation was ruling Babylon, and they were dead. When you have more information, like all the Old Testament, like all the New Testament, and like 2,000 years of church history, and you follow in the same mistakes that you know others have made, you incur a stricter judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. And so it should make us tremble to consider how much information we have and how responsible we are to the Lord. Third, avoid taking away the key of knowledge from yourselves and others. We talked about this and we talked about the parable of the lamp and the eye and we're not going to go into it. But in verse 52, woe to you lawyers for you have taken away the key of knowledge. The picture Jesus is painting here of this locked door that leads to knowledge of the truth. And it says you've taken that key and the door's locked and you just pitched it. And then what you did is you took that doorway and you piled so many regulations in front of it that no one can even see the door. They can't even get to it. So he goes on to say that you yourselves did not enter in verse 52 and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus comments on this in Matthew 15, 3, where he says, why do yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? That's what they were doing. And this is a serious sin. When you are a leader and you are supposed to be leading the people of God closer to God. And what you do is you lead them away from God. That is really bad. That's why it says teachers will incur a stricter judgment. We know what Jesus said in John 17 verses 1 and 2. He says, you know what? Stumbling blocks are going to come. But woe to him to who they come. I tell you it would be better for a person to tie a millstone around his neck. Just get this in your mind. Millstone around the neck. And jump in the sea. Than to lead one of God's little ones astray. These men were leading the nation astray. You can see why Jesus came down on them. Four, expect ungodly men to hate you for exposing their hypocrisy. Look at verse 53. And when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile Why were they hostile? Because Jesus told them the truth. 
But not only were they hostile, look at verse, the middle of verse 53, and they also began to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. And this word catch is a hunting term. It means to snare, to ambush, to sneak up on, to, so to capture or kill. They're trying to capture or kill Jesus and snare him. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that they all with their lips said, we are waiting for the Messiah. We can't wait for the Messiah to come. We are looking forward to the Messiah. And now they're trying to kill him. See the hypocrisy there? So what have we learned? One, avoiding burdening other people with man-made traditions and your own personal convictions and elevating those things above the word of God. Avoid pretending to love the messengers of God if your heart really hates them and you're unwilling to do what they say. Avoid hiding the truth from others with misplaced priorities, ungodly lifestyles, man-made traditions, and spiritual laziness. Don't take away that key of knowledge from anybody. If you're going to take away the key of knowledge, you take it away from yourself, but don't take it away from anybody else. Do never encourage anybody to not take pains with the word of God. And finally, when you speak the truth and love to hypocrites, be prepared. They may hate you for it. It's the way it goes. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. You know, I've had this happen to me so many times. You, you just say something like, well, you know, the Bible says, and instantly there's like, ah, you know, the look on their face is like, ah, don't talk to me about the Bible. Or, you know, God's, ah, you know, don't, don't you talk to me about God. I don't want to hear from God. And that's when you have to decide what is the most loving thing to do for this person? What is the best thing for this person? And you tell them with gentleness and meekness about God. Well, I wish I could say now we're heading into the happy texts. Uh, But uh, we're not quite yet. So let's pray and ask God to... And fasten these truths on our hearts and lives. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. And Father, we, we're all convicted about this. We know we're all hypocrites to different degrees. And Father, we need your grace. We thank you for Christ whose grace is sufficient. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who alone can change us and transform us through your word. Help us to just be honest with each other. To not pretend to be something we're not. Help us to be real. Help us not to put on a religious show. Help us not to do our righteousness to be seen by men. And Father, for those who are leaders, I pray that you would help us to be extra sober and serious about our position. Father, we would never use our position to lead people away from you, either by our words or our hypocritical deeds. That we would never pretend to be something we are not and therefore make disciples who are twice as much children of hell than ourselves. Father, I just pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. Maybe somebody here is convicted right now and sees their hypocrisy and sees their sin and has never really understood why Jesus came and why he died and why he rose again. I pray, Father, that they might right now realize that there is total forgiveness. There is sufficient grace. For all those who call upon the name of the Lord today. 
Father, may they do that. May you save them. May you give them joy and happiness. And for the rest of us, help us to just be true. We know we'll never be perfect, but Father, we know your grace is sufficient to help us walk before you in truth. Help us all, wherever we're at, press on towards the mark, trusting in your grace to get us there. For you have promised you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.